0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: A glittering oasis
0: of fun and glamorous entertainment, but just a few blocks away, a tourist finds a seamier. 42nd Street. Picture Times Square. Not today's version of Times Square, but the version of Times Square in the 1970s. Not the one with all the touristy restaurants, Madame Tussaud's Wax Museum, and Hamilton on Broadway, but the one before that. The Times Square that was the center of porn, pimps, and prostitution. Of sleaze, crime, and smoke.
1: Every theater at one point, every theater on Forty Second Street was a porno theater. We were getting talent by putting ads in the Village Voice, say, um, "Models needed for films. No experience necessary. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nudity required."
2: And magazines were getting bolder. I mean, it was coming out. They were pretty much showing everything at that point in time.
1: But the moralistic people would look down on that type of activity, and it was illegal. It was illegal. Deep Throat became this phenomenon that everybody wanted to see it. And so they started booking it all over the country.
2: It was doctors and lawyers and men with suitcases and boyfriends and girlfriends
0: and old ladies
1: the guys that were selling them that's where the money was so if you got busted their lawyer would be down there before you finish getting booked they also had at that time live sex shows and you know everybody would get busted and before they even got to the jail the lawyer would be there and get them all out and that sort of thing it was like a ha ha kind of situation. Ha ha we got busted <laughs> you know, you know, because the the younger people especially, this was not a moral issue, you know. And the um landscape was primed at this point for exactly what happened. So it was really kind of a perfect storm. You know,
0: a lot of people romanticize about that time. People you don't know what it was like back then. You have it in your head what you think, but it was frightening
2: horrid back then, really scary.
0: Far away from the bright lights of Times Square, deep in the conservative South, there was one man determined to make it big in the business.
3: It is bigger than the Colgate Palmolive Company. It is bigger than Ralston Purina. It is bigger than Coca-Cola and Lockheed. It is bigger than B.F. Goodrich and the Columbia Broadcasting System. It is bigger than General Mills, Nabisco, and Anheuser-Busch. It's is the pornography industry an industry that does a four billion dollar a year business in this country and while atlanta porn king mike thevis is once again behind bars his empire in this city continues to flourish
0: November 1975, the time the name Mike Thiebus became recognized nationally, the time the rest of the country was introduced to him as the Sultan of Smut. Reader's Digest was one of the most popular magazines in the country at the time, a digest of analysis and features delivered to around 16 million households each month. The article, The Sultan of Smut, described the life and times of Mike Thebus operator of America's largest pornography network. If a local story like this was going to reach the rest of the country, Reader's Digest was probably the one print publication that was going to do it. At the time, obscenity laws varied from state to state, and with a changing cultural landscape, courts also found themselves confronted with a backlog of cases on the topics of sex and morality. Throughout the 60s and early 70s, Thebus was right in the middle of it all, having been arrested nearly 100 times, most of them laughable obscenity charges his high-priced lawyers got him out of. But in 1975, Mike Thiebus' home for the next eight years was going to be inside a federal prison. Who was this so-called Sultan of Smut, and how did he form his porn empire in, of all places, Atlanta, Georgia? I learned about Thebus not from Reader's Digest, but from a friend and local Atlantan who went to high school with the Thebus kids. Thebus's warehouse, the place where he ran his business and stored all his adult products, is today just a short walk from Centennial Olympic Park, the Georgia Aquarium, and CNN Center. These days, an Embassy Suites Hotel sits at the same address. Today, there's barely a remnant of what downtown Atlanta was in the 1970s. And I didn't know anything about what Atlanta was like 50 years ago and exactly what went on at Thebus's headquarters. It all began here at Dixie
3: News. Mike Thebus was a night manager here at the Dixie News some years back. And the rest, as they say in the movies, is history. And that history would be more at home in the movies than in fact. For the development and operation of Mike Thevis' pornography empire
0: is truly amazing. Mike Thevis wasn't your average everyday pornographer. He was the son of Greek immigrants. He was an altar boy at the Greek Orthodox Church and, for a time, said he wanted to be a priest. As a teenager, he hopped on the back of a truck with nothing but a few dollars in his pocket and eventually landed in Atlanta. Mike exuded charm, and his southern accent was unmistakable. Those qualities, along with his endless ambition, served him well as he opened up a series of newsstands in downtown Atlanta. Joanne Kaufman was from Liberal, Kansas. She worked at the Soda Fountain across from the Marietta Street newsstand, Mike ran. At first, Joanne thought he was stuck up and conceited. But eventually, Mike noticed her. Their first date was at the Varsity the world's largest drive-in and hot dog stand, right in the heart of the city. Mike and Joanne fell in love. They were married five months later. He was 19. She was only 16. And times were tough in those early days. They could barely make the $50 rent on their first apartment, an apartment set in the shadow of the Atlanta penitentiary. Still, he felt he really was living the American dream. Mike told Joanne he'd make his millions one day.
1: I love, one Just love and we live like brothers. when I build my world Take my word You won't have to scream to be heard when I build my world.
0: Mike and Joanne always wanted to have a large family. All told, they had five children together. I contacted Tony Thebus. He's the twin brother of Stephanie and he still lives here in Atlanta. Like his dad, Tony projected an air of confidence and swagger. I wondered what it was like for Tony, growing up with his father always in the spotlight. He told me about his early childhood memories.
2: Riding around on his motorcycle in Sandy Springs up and down hills and um, riding around in the Packard on Sundays and going to brunch with the family and stuff like that. Picnics on the river with our family. His father, my grandfather, is obviously full Greek. He spoke primarily Greek. He's obviously fluent in English, and his mother uh, was not Greek, my grandmother. He was not born and raised in Greece. He spent some time in Greece, but very little. He was born in Raleigh, North Carolina. Well, Raleigh has a big Greek community, and I think that's why my grandparents lived there at the time. When he started out in Atlanta at 19 years old, he opened a bookstore or worked for a bookstore and then took it over from the owner who wanted to get out. He probably was at work literally by 6 o'clock in the morning and didn't come home from work until 8 o'clock at night. He was consumed with work and the pornography business kind of just fell into his lap. It was an accidental find. It was not something he pursued.
0: How did Atlanta, of all places, become the home of this sex industry empire?
2: According to my father, Hugh Hefner came to him and asked him to sell Playboy magazine, which had just come out. He did. I think not initially, but he was pursued a couple times, and he did, and they flew off the shelves. So he made the obvious conclusion, and he once told me, and I think it's been repeated many times and 90% of his profit came from 10% of his product. He made the obvious conclusion there, and he went more and more into it, but it was, it was not something he thought about or knew about at the time. According to him, he opened additional newsstands and put in more product like a Playboy magazine. I, I don't recall what the names of the others were. I do know that he told me he turned down uh, Larry Flint and Hustler magazine because it was just too far out at that time.
0: In the heyday of Mike Davis' business expansion, Tony was just a kid. He knew the story of his father, but even as an adult, it seems like there was a lot. He's still trying to piece together.
2: When we lived at the big house that we grew up in, he had a closet that he used to show off to people when they'd come over. And it was a giant closet filled with suits. He would show it off and he'd love to wear suits all day long and, and be a businessman. He was truly a, a businessman who accidentally fell into the pornography business. He didn't look the part. You know, he he looked like a Wall Street person every day. And it really wanted the respect that came with that look. And it wasn't flashy, it was styling, and it was acceptable. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the last few years investigating this stuff on my own, much like you're doing now. Because I'm inundated at this point in my life with a Hollywood interest in movies and documentaries and that sort of thing. Every outlet out there has come to me to do something and I can't stop it, so I might as well. What's the old saying, you can get on the horse or get dragged behind it one way or the other, you're gonna deal with it. So you can all just see what's online for the negative stuff. As far as the positive stuff, I know that he loved his family, he loves his kids, He flat out said he can't believe he wasted his life like he did.
1: Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a
3: million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It
2: was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen.
0: I was very interested in the house. The house that Mike Thevis built, where Mike and Joanne raised their five children. Mike Jr., Tony, Stephanie, Christina, and Jason. As Thiebus built his fortune, he also built Lionsgate. Located in northwest Atlanta, not far from Buckhead, it was one of Atlanta's largest homes in the 1970s. It looks like a castle. This was no ordinary house.
2: It's an English tuner manor, it's 12,500 square feet. Now it's only on three and a half acres, it was on 18. And it's spectacular in every way. He had to pay cash for everything. But you know, he was in a cash business, he needed to get, move the money and he used to tell me that he would get a lot more work done by the contractors and the house became bigger because of the available cash that he needed to get rid of. He'd walk in there one day while I was constructing it and he would say, take this room out another 15 feet or go that way another 10 feet and here's some cash to pay for it.
0: Paul Lieberman, reporter for the Atlanta Constitution at the time, remembered the size and presence of the house.
4: Thieves lived in this giant Tudor mansion. spends what would probably be today the equivalent of $15 million with a lake and a moat. It's unbelievable. You have to have the right house, and this is the Gatsby deal. But he does. And Thieves also had tried to buy his way into polite society by donating to a lot of charities. And people took his money, and they said nice things about him.
0: Years later, the house was back in the spotlight. Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston lived in the house. They
1: tell me there's a story about you having sex with a ghost. Oh boy, yeah, but this was at a time when I was filming Ghostbusters Part 2. But I had I bought this house in Atlanta, Georgia, which was owned by who they say the porn king was um mm-hmm. at the time. It was just a spooky spooky house. I, I
4: actually woke up into a some would call a, I guess a wet dream, but it was, you know, it Did was you see what it someone, was. A girl there? I really saw someone. Was I it a it,
1: ghost or like a person. It Was the ghostly person. And you had sex with the ghostly person. Yes. After this occurred, Bobby. Yeah. Did you say something crazy going on? I didn't like that house anymore. (laughs) At all. (laughs) Did you leave soon after? I did leave soon after that.
0: I needed to see the house for myself. You get to the house by driving through windy roads and heavily wooded areas in northwest Atlanta. It's not an area of the city I have been to often, and I was struck not only by the scale and beauty of the mansions here, but also the pure number of incredible houses that line the roads. Some old, some new, but all are truly beautiful estates. Professional athletes have discovered this area for their own homes, an escape from the pressures of stardom while still offering bragging rights of the biggest and baddest estates. It was an easy 20-minute drive from my house. The turn-off ends with a stop in front of large iron gates. The placard said Lionsgate Estate, with a symbol of an ancient-looking lion, like one that might belong on a coat of arms. The iron gates are connected to two tall stone columns, each with large lions sitting on top both appearing to stand guard. I asked Tony about the name, and he wasn't sure where it came from, just something his dad dreamed up, which suited the grandeur of the place. In fact, the Lion Gate was the main entrance to the citadel of Mycenae in southern Greece, first erected in the 13th century BC, up on a large hill, and designed to protect from invaders below. Once an 18-acre estate, the Thevis' Lion's Gate is now a mere three acres in size, A newer looping road encircles the entire property, surrounded by a collection of 12 homes, each worth over a million dollars themselves. As you enter the front walkway to the house, two more large, dark-colored marble lions stare at you. The house really did feel like a castle, a fortress. I never thought a house could feel scary or intimidating, but this house did. After everything I had heard about the house, it felt more like a compound and less like a place to raise a family. I wondered, what was it really like growing up in this place?
2: My father um, was very adamant about never bringing the business home. I mean, inside the, that property, it was Laurel and Hardy movies, Disney movies, Brady Bunch, Andy Griffith type stuff. There was never any magazines or anything of that sort. It was just a family home. When the newspaper would come to the house, back in the day, you would get in two newspapers a day in the morning paper, it was called the Atlantic Constitution, and then the evening paper, the Atlanta Journal, and every day his name was in the paper, and I was like, this is weird, and I, you want to know why a seven-year-old was reading the paper, because I was the one who would go down to the hill and bring it up to my mom, and then, of course, going to school, and I would hear people talk about it, and then seeing it on TV quite a bit in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that I can look back on today that really bothered me was I have a distinct memory of parents not allowing their children to come play with us because of my father's reputation that they saw in the newspaper and on tv and I frankly can't blame them honestly I don't know if I wouldn't have done the same thing but I would have had those children meaning myself and my sister and brothers to come to their homes but it was just no you're not going over to that house and you're not hanging out with those kids so I think that has a dramatic effect on any child and it certainly did me when I say today I wouldn't want my children to live in a place like that,
1: it's probably because of that. I can't see where it's told on them in any way. I can't see where their fin- friends have offended them, which I think is is uh, very unusual. And maybe it has and they've kept it from me. You really love your children, don't you? I'm very close to my children.
0: As I dug into his life, it was clear that stories about Mike Thebus featured one central character, Michael George Thevis.
1: If I have to buy my freedom, I could have probably done that a long time ago. How? Political friends and so forth.
3: The indictment spells out so many charges against you. You think you can beat them all? Oh, yeah. Do you? Like Julius
1: you, you Caesar, I've crossed Rubicon, I'm ready to do battle. Are you serious about movie making? Do you want to be a movie mogul? I don't know about a movie mogul, but uh, I'm very serious about the movie making. In fact, we've moved our facilities from MGM in Hollywood to Atlanta. There's no doubt in my mind that they are are nervous at best about having to do business with Mike Thevis.
0: He was savvy with the media, but you rarely heard publicly from anyone else close to him or his operations. Whether he was in his office or at home, you never saw where he was. It was as if everything else was off limits, except the man himself. Gregory Janes, a reporter for the Atlanta Constitution, talked to many who had visited Lionsgate and were blown away by what they saw. They couldn't wait to give just a little insight into Thiebus as the life of the party, but they didn't share their name. We didn't hear them at the time, but it might have sounded something like this.
2: You go into Mike Thiebus' house, and you go down the hallway, Jack, and you notice the word Picasso. That's the
4: real one. You notice a Monet. <laughs> That's the real moniker.
3: His wife, Joanne, bought him a chess set, hand-tooled, gold, jeweled, one of about 10 in the world. She bought it to surprise him and he doesn't even know how to play chess. (sighs) Of course, Mike's quick. He picked it up fast. But doesn't it strike you that here we are playing beginner's chess on a $75,000
1: set?
2: Mike spent $10,000 on flowers alone for a Christmas party for his record company people. When this dude gives a party, Man, he would make the great Gatsby salivate. He takes good care of his people, though, I'll tell you that. He's generous to a fault. But let me tell you this. A friend once told me he's the world's biggest lollipop.
0: The Justice Department has investigated Mike inside and out, round the corner and up your alley for three solid years, and they can't connect him with the mob. Let me tell you this. What he wants most is respectability. He really does. He wants to be recognized for his business ability. And you gotta admit it, he's hell of a businessman. He parlayed a newsstand and two shoeshine parlors in two millions. But out in Buckhead, where his wife gets her hair done, they start whispering when she comes in. So, Mike Thevis had begun to build an expansive collection of newsstands. He was a blue collar Gatsby, a Horatio Alger figure that had come from humble beginnings. To this. Newsstands that sold adult magazines and toys. Was this really the business that was making Thieves his millions? Or was something else going on here? I met Paul Lieberman in person, a man who knew more about the story than just about anyone.
4: I was in Atlanta from 1975 to 84. I was a writer and then projects editor for the Atlanta newspapers. And for my first several years, I worked as a writing team with Jim Stewart. And I was the New York invader who experienced an investigative work, and he was the southern bubba from Dothan, Alabama. I knew a mob guy once who people said, how do you get away with what you do? And he said, look around you. Look at that secretary filing their nails. Look at the people sitting in offices, calling whoever else, staring into the distance, doing crossword puzzles. Look at the people walking down the street. He said, no one works. I get away with what I do because I work. Racial issues were (laughs) forefront. The black population, and this in the uh, typical of the South, the ripples go back all the way to the Civil War. You felt it in the air because a black administration had just taken effect. The city's power structure was still white. You had like five establishment law firms downtown that were very powerful. But Atlanta also was pretty progressive, growing, proud of itself. And of course, in 19... 19- 76, a Georgian was elected president, and that put a lot of focus on things. A lot of chest puffing up, but it had, a, it had a seedy side too. A lot of polish, a lot of kind of southern gentry. I mean, people who had been to the great state schools, and they really were bright and up and coming. And then you had the redneck element just around it. So there was there were all sorts of tensions between that, the professional side, and the redneck side. Between the budding black political power, and then the pure racist resistance to that, and also an entrenched power. But Atlanta saw itself as, you know, the beacon of progressive South. Well, Thevis was classic gangster profile. His creation myth is the same as scores and scores of gangsters, of every ethnicity, of every color, every shape. They're all altar boys i mean you come from nothing and you're an altar boy and you make it on your own by industry just providing a service that people want in his case he was from a greek immigrant family his grandparents raised him but of course he was the altar boy and he had to work his way up what he doesn't tell you is that at age 16 he was arrested for breaking and entering and actually got five years probation which was pretty significant his tale, too, is he's originally from North Carolina. He comes to Atlanta, gets a job working at a newsstand, making next to nothing. So he opens several stands himself, and they discover that a disproportionate amount of their money comes from girly magazines. Now, this is not pornography. It's Playboy was, of course, controversial when it came out. But that's the story, that there's a small amount of the trade brings in a disproportionate amount of money. I mean, the thought that the sin centers of America are in the big cities. I mean, New York, Vegas, places like that, it's not in the conservative heartland. So one of the first things Thieves did was you'd sell a book that had an introduction by a psychiatrist or someone else talking about sexual health and whatever. And then the rest of the book was pictures of people's body parts and engaging in procreative activities and you know that was attempt to make it legal and put a cover on it
3: it says martial aids it means marital aids and along with other sexual devices and paraphernalia they make up part of the pornography industry it is the smallest part of that industry but the profit is there nonetheless According to Forbes magazine, the sale of such devices will amount to 100 million dollars a year. Now, those articles are illegal in Georgia, but law enforcement officials suspect that the sale of sexual devices goes on in many cases behind closed doors.
4: So he starts bringing that to the heartland, but the big leap becomes peep shows. And it's the same as with slot machines and gambling. The technology of a slot machine, you have to feed it. You get constant rewards. Well, the same with peep shows. Peep shows had started around New York. They first showed cartoons for kids. You put in a nickel, whatever it was, and then it would, you know, go for a minute. You have to put another nickel in. Well, enough with the cartoons. They started putting, you know, naked women. And the live shows, by the way, in... Places like Times Square work the same way.
3: But this is the real moneymaker, the mini-movie. Of course, I'm inside a department store watching a cartoon, but it's not too much of a jump from a cartoon to an adult peep show and adult peep shows are the backbone of the pornography industry. Inside an adult bookstore, there may be 15 or 20 machines somewhat similar to this, except that they're not showing Mighty Mouse. What they do show is a portion of a sexually explicit film for a quarter. The catch is that you can't see all the film for a quarter. You have to keep putting in quarters
4: to see the whole film. And nobody really knows how many quarters go in. So Thiebus' genius was to take the peep shows from places like Times Square and bring them to the heartland. So when he started spreading out, he went into business with a guy in New York. What Thiebus would do is, if you had a bookstore, he would lease you the machine, so you're paying him a regular amount, and then he gets half the proceeds, you keep half, everyone will try to cheat you in such a business, so he tried to develop his own brand of machine that had a very good clicker monitor on it that told him how much was coming in because you're hiring people that are willing to be arrested and so they may not be the most honest. Two things you have to do is one, you have to protect your turf and you also have to enforce that people aren't skimming from you. So this sort of business uh, is not going to be a conventional contract business. I mean, it's and it's also cash. What happened was the remote locations would convert the quarters into $100 bills, send them to him. But around Atlanta, he would collect the coins. And there was a guy in Cleveland doing it at the same time. Reuben Sturman was his counterpart. The, the two of them, to their credit, said, why shouldn't the, the Heartland also have? But yeah, the peep shows are the money. No labor and uh, a stimulus-reward system that, that hooks people.
0: By the early 1970s, Thiebus was said to have amassed a $100 million fortune that's over $650 million in today's dollars and was said to control over 40% of the adult entertainment industry nationwide. Thiebus had stumbled upon a cash cow, the peep show was like a modern-day arcade game, like Pac-Man. Put a quarter in, and another, and another. The explosive growth of his adult entertainment operation fueled new business opportunities like restaurants and real estate, more legitimate businesses designed to keep law enforcement officials away.
3: It is the money, obviously, that attracts organized crime. Mike Thievus has managed to insulate himself and others in his organization by setting up paper corporations. Sources tell me he has managed to set up more than
0: 300 of those corporations. Despite his best efforts, people wouldn't stop calling him the porno king.
3: In a long, rambling conversation with me, Mike said he resented always being referred to as the porno king. he He had lots of other businesses, trucking, furniture, apartment houses, and gift shops. He was a movie producer, head of charitable organizations, had the keys to the cities of Atlanta, Nashville, and Los Angeles, given to him by top city officials. He was lauded and applauded, cussed and discussed, and finally jailed. And even there, he has lots to say.
2: He was just a, an old school Southern gentleman who wore a suit, who had a bad temper, and fell into the business. And, and but I knew him well enough to know he man had a terrible temper, and. He believed in what he believed, and I've caught him in enough, I caught him in, and I'm not trying to disparage my father who's not here to defend himself, but I'm a realist, so I caught him, and when I think back at some of the conversations we had, I mean, he basically gave it up in just the conversations we had, and I, I, to this day, don't understand why he did what he did, other than he had a very short fuse, a very short temper, and he was not the kind of person you wanted to cross. Yeah, did I know that in 1970 as a four-year-old? No. But I learned it as I grew older.
3: Today, police pursue the angle that Hannah's dealings in Atlanta's pornography business led to his death. This morning, Lieutenant C.J. Strickland questioned Mike Thevis, a man who's been called the kingpin of Atlanta's smut industry. Thevis is
1: believed to be the last person to have seen Hannah before his death. I don't have any knowledge as to what happened to uh, Mr. Hannah. He was a personal friend of mine, and I just think it's a terrible tragedy, tragedy, tragedy.
0: this season on Gangster House.
3: A month before the fire, Thievis told him there was only room for one bookstore in Fayetteville and that Womack should either sell out or close down. Womack refused.
2: I feel something to my right, and there's a black limo, two men in black suits with a baby doll.
3: Former Green Beret captain said Thievis once told him of killing a man face to face, of shooting him and watching
1: him beg for his life. There's two guys. Thievis was like stocky, was bald, and another guy who she looked like he was a sort of an escapee from Brooklyn. So they dumped the money out on the table and said, count it.
2: I heard pop, pop, pop. I could see a very dark car driving by our property very slowly.
3: He was a few feet away when Mays was blown up in his van. He said, there were pieces
1: all around me. What were the circumstances of the shooting? Don't know yet. Uh, that's been in the news lately.
0: We heard they were connected with the Mike Thevis organization. Can you confirm that? Yes. Was it a setup? It appears to be, yes.
3: He presented Thevis with a piece of bone he was planning to turn into a paperweight.
4: He told us there was a half a million dollars in cash in the car and a million dollars in jewelry.
3: So Mike Thevis walked out this door to freedom. Thevis, where's he? Some are speculating he may be in Colombia or Costa Rica, countries which before have harbored United States
0: criminals. Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hope, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself, Jasmine Cross, and Stephen Warner with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia and WSB TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. When I Build My World, performed and written by Jimmy Lewis. Originally released in 1974 by Hotlanta Records. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Ginn Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit gangsterhouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening.